0: welcome to another episode of people with purpose Uh, today i'm very pleased to be joined by tony courtney brown who is the uh, founder of the bio uh, resonance clinic uh, into holistic uh, medicine and uh, really uh, passionate about helping people to tap into the body's ability to heal and rebalance itself under the banner of total body health so tony thanks for joining us and welcome to the show Thank you, David. Great to see you. Uh, what are you up to at the minute?
1: Um, at the moment, we're treating quite a few people with long COVID, which seems to be an unfortunate thing that's increasing at the moment. And to do that, we're using mainly our hyperboric, sorry, hyperbaric oxygen chamber, um, as this tends to boost the oxygen in the body, clear out all the dead cells, helps with respiratory problems, and helps people to breathe easier. Now, we also use a light bed, which uses red, near-infrared, and blue heat, which heals the body and goes through to different levels, from the skin, penetrating the body. And again, this is having beneficial effects with people who've got particular conditions.
0: Okay, and that's all part of the bioresonance approach, is it?
1: Uh, The bioresonance is a further treatment that we use, and that operates on the... Basis of quantum physics using frequencies and vibrations, and harmonizing those within the body to help the body to heal itself.
0: Okay, so these are um, so these are natural uh, remedies. Then trying to, as I said before, really, you're all about trying to harness the the stuff that's in the body already to to help it to heal itself. Is that correct?
1: That's absolutely correct. So with the oxygen, you know, it's um, call it wind. <laughs> um, The light bed is like heat from the sun, fire. I mean, ancient people knew all about the healing properties of the sun. Um, So that's Earth. And the Earth is bioresonance because its frequencies linked to the Earth. And, you know, I think I may have mentioned before we were going to call ourselves Earth, Wind and Fire, but somebody... (laughs) too
0: <laughs> excellent excellent actually earth wind and fire are one of my were well, they're one of the first bands i ever got into uh, my, uh, my 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 uh, da- i don't know if it's my dad or my mum who was a big earth wind and fire fan but i uh, used to love sticking that on sticking the, that vinyl on the turntable back in the 70s when i was growing up amazing well i mean yeah you you'll probably get into a couple of uh trademark issues i expect if you uh, if you went down that road
1: i would although i think you may have seen my picture recently where i probably looked like i stepped straight from the band
0: <laughs> <laughs> i did and uh and yeah Tony, that was a, that was a splendid uh a splendid afro Was it, would you call it an afro i would call it an afro yeah yeah it was it was it's awesome there's also a picture of me uh floating around uh from the uh probably from it's probably the early 90s actually so but i'm in my kind of um i've got long hair then and to see me now you wouldn't believe that ever happened so uh so there you go we've all got a glorious past haven't we we've all got a glorious past um and uh so um okay cool well so that's really interesting how how did you get into all of that
1: um that came from health challenges that i've had and that started with being diagnosed with depression when i was 15 and then put on antidepressants and kept on them for the next 45 years now i've always had struggles with depression um but then i don't know how much of that was just being an angsty rc teenager (laughs) and then to put me on antidepressants and just keep me on them for 45 years and say you're going to need to be on these for the rest of your life was something that i accepted and believed for the next 45 years until i started to think well maybe there is another way
0: okay okay So. 45 years does sound like a long time to be on anything, let alone um, antidepressants. So, I mean, what what triggered that? And um, I mean, tell us a bit more about about how that came about.
1: I think some of that came from my background. Um, My parents are from Jamaica, came over in the 50s. And I came along probably at the wrong time. Um, At the time, my mother was a nurse, and living in a bedsit in Northampton. My dad was at University Nottingham some way off and I appeared. My mother still had to go to work. My father was miles away so I ended up being fostered for the first six years of my life with a Dutch family and that was really fantastic. I loved it but because I didn't know any other family I thought that they were my family and I grew up thinking that the Dutch people were my parents, um, my foster siblings I thought were my real siblings, and I didn't know any different. And when I had to then go back to my birth parents, that was traumatic. It was a huge shock. And I think that's probably where it all started. So a couple of issues there. So one was because I was brought up with the Dutch people, in quite an isolated area, I didn't know that I was a different colour from them. And my first experience of finding out that I was different was when I was five and I was walking down the road and people started racially abusing me. And then I started looking at me and looking at them and thinking, oh, well, I look different. And I went home, got in the bath, got some scouring powder and tried to scrub Colour off. My foster mother came in and said, Don't ever do that, washed it all off, gave me a huge hug, and said, Those people are stupid, don't listen to them ever again. So that I think was the first thing that made me start to think differently. But then I think the real big kicker was going back to my birth parents and the clash of their expectations of me. And me being a six-year-old, thinking, who are these people? Why am I taken away from my family?
0: Okay. Well, I mean, there's a couple, there's a couple of things in there. I mean, what, what an amazing thing for, for your foster mother to do. Uh, and um, yeah, that, 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 that's amazing. And uh, and okay, so you were six when you then returned to your parents. Uh, so, um, so yeah, so that must have been a real change. I mean, I, I look at my experience as a parent now. And in fact, only yesterday I was thinking back to, uh, to a thing that I, <laughs> that I did. And it's a really, really small thing that I did. Um, which, uh, which might've upset my, uh, one of my daughters a, a, a few years ago. And I thought, wow, what, what, you know, did, did that have an effect on, on her, you know? And, and so as a parent, even, seemingly small things to you can sometimes you can sometimes worry that they're at the time you can sometimes worry that they're big things later on Uh, and and also as a a parent you can sometimes worry about things that happen to your children that they don't even seem to notice so it's a really it's a really difficult difficult thing to get right isn't it it is yes so um okay so you return to your family um and then what happens next because when did you go on to antidepressants was that when you were a teenager you said
1: it was when i was a teenager okay so i had some difficult times because i really didn't gel with my parents they didn't gel with me um and there was a culture clash and their expectations were quite different to how i'd actually turned out and appeared and i think that they found that difficult and i found that difficult And the other thing was that their marriage wasn't one made in heaven, putting it that way. And there was a lot of violence involved, a lot of arguments, which I witnessed. And when the violence wasn't between them, then it was towards me. And there's a lot of physical pain involved, um, going to bed, knowing that I'm going to get a thrashing in the morning, and my stomach just being permanently turning upside down. And I think that's where the stress and anxiety kicked off. And then when I was a bit older, um, I got sent away to a boarding school. And at first there, I was thriving, doing well academically. And then when I was about 14 or 15, I don't know, I kind of lost my mojo. But there again, that happens with a lot of teenagers, doesn't it? You get at a certain age, thing think, well, I'm going to go and do my own thing. Why should I study this? And, <laughs> and that's that. But then I was diagnosed with depression and then put on these pills from that age onwards. So that's where it started. But I think that the big kicker for that was the separation from my foster parents and then going back to my birth parents.
0: Okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. And so... So 45 years is a, is a long time then to, to, to be on antidepressants then. So, so, so what, what, what was it that happened that made you think, I, I don't want to do this anymore? I guess that that's what happened. Something happened to, to say I, I, for you to say, I don't want to do this anymore and, and, and to, to trigger a change. What, what, what was that?
1: There's a bit of a story behind that. Um, so after I left school, I ended up going to do a degree in psychology which kind of fits in, because I was still very confused, um, didn't understand why I'd been put on the pills, why am I like this? I know, I'll go and study psychology. Unfortunately, I chose to do a BSc rather than a BA, because I didn't know the difference. And while at school it took me six attempts to get my math so level, I ended up signing for a Bachelor of Science, which has got three-hour unseen statistics paper and that freaked me out an awful lot managed to get through that and sort of when i finished that i thought you know i'll end up with a job and a start in life but unfortunately ended up homeless and broke and unemployed So after being homeless for a while, I luckily met up with some other people and found out about things called short-life housing co-ops. And this is where the council have got streets of empty houses, nobody living in them, and going to the council and saying, can we take those over until you demolish them or do whatever you're going to do? And so for a peppercorn rent, they allowed us to do that, as long as we brought them up to a habitable standard. And then life was sort of quite interesting. It turned into a sort of hippie commune with a particular kind of people gravitating towards this area, um, living in all these rundown houses, which we then fixed up. But then I didn't have a job, um, but I went to sign on one day and they said, we've got a job for you. It's this side of the counter start Monday. So then I started work in the Dole office and it became very clear to me how the whole system was designed to stop people from claiming what they're entitled to and also seeing the effects of people who are being turned down for benefits and literally having nothing and no way of surviving or they've been um, disqualified from claiming benefits for a while, for six weeks or whatever, and then seeing how on earth are they supposed to survive for that period of time. And having been through that, I knew that very well, how that system works. Managed to get out of that uh, and went to work for a voluntary organisation advising homeless people. And again, that was a sort of straight line in a way because I've been unemployed, so then it's finding out about the unemployment system. been homeless and now it's advising homeless people. And then I ended up joining local council uh, and getting a job for a sort of supposedly proper job, um, where I had to dress properly as a housing officer, and um, yeah, that was my entry into local government. So that was quite a change.
0: And um, it's interesting that you mentioned about about that whole thing about uh, uh, you know pe- people on people on benefits or people struggling you know to make ends meet because uh, we're in a, we're in a similar sort of situation now potentially with energy bills rising inflation potentially going into double digits all that kind of thing and I was having a conversation with somebody um, the the other day and I, I'm i quite an optimistic I've got quite an optimistic outlook on things and uh, I've got quite a lot of belief in in you know your the ability of the individual to kind of uh, to kind of forge your way forward and a kind of a positive mindset thing and all that sort of thing and um in a way, quite rightly, I was sort of brought down to earth a little bit by, uh, by somebody in a conversation that I was having, which said, "Well, you know, that's that's okay for you to for you to talk like that." But the reality of the situation is that there are, you know, people who are uh, are finding the situation very challenging at the moment, and uh, and not everyone is going to be able to get themselves out of it. Now again, this that's something I find really hard to to get my to get my head around because I do have this belief in the human ability to uh to 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 make a decision and then go after it and make a change and if you if you don't take responsibility for something um yourself then no one else is going to take responsibility for you you know you, you you've got to do that i mean what's what's your thoughts about that i mean how how do people move from from that kind of a position where they're struggling to make ends meet to into into a better place
1: that's a really interesting one because on one hand yes you know unless you can make a decision make a plan um think positively you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps get off your backside etc etc unless you can do that nothing's going to happen but if you're not in a situation where you can't see how you're going to eat for the next few days or you haven't got a roof over your head or both then it's really hard to be in that frame of mind because all you can see is not much in front of you now i've certainly been in that position a number of times on both sides of the fence and when i got my first job with the council all this period i'd still been on antidepressants and at times when they said, oh, it's got too bad, you have to go and have some electroconvulsive therapy, sort of frying the brain. So if you've seen one flew over the cuckoo's nest, you would have seen the scene where they put something in your mouth to stop you from swallowing your tongue, electrodes either side, and basically shock your brain. And this supposedly stops you from being so depressed. Some people have said that it's been of some benefit to them. With me, it just destroyed bits of my short-term memory. Um, I'll come back to that later. But when you're in that position, you can't see a way forward. You can't do anything. So it takes either some help from somebody else or an opportunity to change. And some people get that opportunity and a lot don't. I was very fortunate, um, and then I got into this local government environment, but because also I'd been homeless, I was very angry and frustrated when I saw the people at the top making decisions, which I thought were stupid or somehow they were not helpful to people who then had to bear the consequences of their decision. And so I made it my ambition to get to the top as quickly as possible to make better decisions from the perspective of having been homeless and having lived in council housing. Then I thought that that would give me more empathy with regard to some of the decisions that were made. What I didn't bargain on is all the politics involved and how the whole system works.
0: Okay, so you, so you, in a way, there was a drive within you then to, you saw an injustice, and you wanted, there was a drive within you to, to, to try to do something about that. Where do you think that came from?
1: I think, ironically, some of that came from my birth father, who, whilst I never liked him, had this incredible driving and you could not tell him it's not possible you couldn't tell him it can't be done um he came from a really poor background in jamaica where he had to run to school three miles in his bare feet uh he took me to his mother's house out there and it was just a one room place with a dirt floor and having been brought up in the uk i walked in and and I said, oh, where's the kitchen? And he said, you see that pile of stones there? She puts a pot on it and cooks. Okay, uh, where does she sleep? In the corner over there. Well, where's the bathroom? He said, come with me. And behind the place where she lived was a river. And there was a man sitting, stark naked on a rock splashing himself and singing, and he said, in his Jamaican accent, Okay, <laughs> completely blew my mind, and I thought, my goodness, people live like this, and he came from that. And he came from that. He got a scholarship to a technical college. Then he got a scholarship to Toronto University, to do chemistry and agriculture. Then when my mother got a job as a nurse over here, you know, in the 50s, they brought people, invited people over to come and help build the motherland. My mother came over. He followed and continued his course at Nottingham University. He then left with his degree and could only get a job as a guard on British Rail, because that's all that he could get at that time, trying to get somewhere to live, no, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Went through all that stuff. He then got a job selling vacuum cleaners. And sometimes he'd take me out with him, And we'd get such abuse knocking on the doors trying to sell these things. But he wouldn't stop. It's like water off a ducks back to him. He'd just go knock on the next door. But if he got into a house, there was no way he was leaving without selling a vacuum. And he became rather good at this. He could actually be extremely charming. That was one side of him, quite different from the other side. Then also he just hit upon this idea. I don't know how he did this, but he managed to set up a club in Northampton where we lived, an East Indian club, and people came from miles around and he put on food, music, drinks, and then from there, he got an idea about setting up a charter company to hire planes to enable people to go back to the West Indies for holidays. And he organized this through British Airways, as it was then, through Air France. I don't know how he did that. He negotiated these deals with them, which ended up in people getting flights half the price of regular flights to go backwards and forwards. And out of this, he made a huge amount of money very, very quickly. And then he bought a piece of land and he built a house in a very exclusive part of Northampton. The neighbours around there saw that he was doing this and they put up a petition to try and stop him from buying the land and building the house because they was a little bit prejudiced. And that just made him even more determined to do it. And he did it. There was nothing you could tell him he couldn't do. And I think that's where the drive came from. I'm not sure how I got that, but it it was – I think that's where it came from.
0: Okay, okay. Well, there might be a bit of genetics, I suppose. There might be a bit of uh, role modelling. And also, you know, if if you're in a situation as as the one that you described, then potentially that's then the time when you kind of – you dig into that whole instinct – Perhaps it's the fight or flight thing. Maybe I, don't, I mean I don't know. I'm just surmising, but uh, it could be a combination of all those sorts of things. But it's interesting to hear that there's that kind of experience uh, in in your in your background because that that plays forward into into what what happens later in your life in a way, doesn't
1: it? It does indeed. Yeah.
0: So take us back then to the um, to the you know you're you're, you're in a situation where. Uh, you, you're, you're, you're recognising that the antidepressants are no longer any good for you and you need to do something different.
1: Right. Um just go back a little bit from there, yeah. what I did, having joined the council as a housing officer, I rapidly went up the scale and about six, seven years later, was a director of housing um, at a very young age and was managing over 20,000 properties, 500 staff, unions, politicians. It was a lot to take on. And at the time, again, I'm still taking antidepressants and getting electroconvulsive therapy. I was also in a relationship that didn't work and that piled on the pressure as well. So it was difficult trying to juggle with the job, which was a lot of pressure and Home when I was at home, which was also a lot of pressure. And at one point, I crashed, and I went through a period where I couldn't go to work, and I couldn't even get to the doctors. So the psychiatrist came to see me at home, and he saw the home situation, where unfortunately the, um, the person, the person in the relationship, had a bit of a drink issue and he saw the state of the house and he just said you don't need a psychiatrist you need a lawyer now that's always stuck with me and I maybe should have listened to him at that time however i didn't i was not in a strong enough position in my mind to think i should make the break now i should just go and so i stayed and then things got worse progressively worse then what happened is i lost my job at the same time, it's going through a divorce, which was several years later, and now there was a son, young son involved. All these things came together at one time. When I went to court for the divorce, the judge, lady judge, just looked at me over the top of the glasses and said, I'm giving 90% to your wife, and you'll pay your son's school fees till he's 18 for the next 10 years. And I said, where am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to do this? I've just lost my job. Blah, 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 blah. And she said, if you don't shut up, I'll have you taken down. One court officer grabbed one arm. Another one grabbed the other. And my solicitor just went, let it go. So that was it. I had to let everything go. And then found myself again homeless, jobless, and skint.
0: Why? Okay, so um, so what happened then, Tony? <laughs>
1: um, then, luckily, I came across somebody who gave me a job in their nursery, children's nursery, as a playcare worker, and it meant getting the kids breakfast before they went to school, walking the older ones to school, then coming back, keeping the younger ones entertained, and clearing up any mess. Of all kinds that they might produce during the course of the day
0: yeah.
1: uh, and keeping them entertained until the parents came to pick them up and then also making tea for those who stayed on a bit later because the parents came to pick them up later and I stayed doing that for probably a year and a half two years or so and that, that was also quite an eye-opener because a lot of the parents there were struggling um, trying to keep their heads above water And sometimes the only meal that the kids got were what they were given for breakfast in the nursery and at night. And again, it became very clear to me how hard it was for some people to survive. Mm. Then I, a bit like my dad, I hit upon this idea and thought, well, you know all about housing. Why don't you use that that knowledge? And went to a number of agencies specialising in interim work. And then found that I could do this. I got some contracts, got into that, and I spent the next 10 years going around the country advising different councils and housing associations on their housing strategies. I managed to build myself back up again. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, okay. So another another comeback. Well done. Yeah. Um, it's a bit of a, a rollercoaster ride. <laughs> um and uh, yeah, okay. So, so, so you're back. You're back in. You're back in the game then. Yeah. And uh, but, are you still on antidepressants at this point?
1: Still on antidepressants. Right. Um. And then what happened was I got myself into another relationship whilst on my travels. Hmm. Came back to London, um, bought a house, and was still sort of touring the country, getting contracts. Then found a permanent job in London, did that for a while. Then that organisation closed, so I went doing interim work again. And then 2008-9 crash happened. All the contracts dried up. Um, The bills were piling up, including repossession notices, court dates, and the relationship that I was in fell apart at the same time as well. And I sort of went down the plug hole again and I couldn't see a way out. So I'd hit that wall again, which I'd faced before, but this time I couldn't see a way out. And so in a calculated way, I'd stored up a lot of the antidepressants and got a few bottles of wine from the off-license down the road, sat in a bath, took all the antidepressants, drank all the wine. And the intention was that I would not wake up again after that. Okay. But as you can see, I did wake up again. Yeah. <laughs> but I woke up to find myself in a locked ward, sectioned under the Mental Health Act in a mental hospital. To this day, I'm not sure how I got there. I don't know who found me. I don't know what happened.
0: Okay, wow. So... um so you're in, a, you're in an institution then? Yeah. And this is what, 2009?
1: No, this is about 2011.
0: 2011, sorry,
1: sorry. It okay. Christmas. It was Christmas because, I have to say, Christmas is not my favourite time of year. And I suppose it really hit me as well at that time because people are walking around smiling, there are carols you hear playing, and Christmas, there's all this enforced happiness. And I think that the disconnect between the way I was feeling at the time and all this enforced seasonal jollity just clashed and made the situation in my head even worse than it was.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of focus now, isn't there, on on mental health and um, and lots of campaigning around around loneliness and 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 you know the need for people to to be able to talk, did you not feel that there was anybody that you could talk to at that point? No,
1: there wasn't. Um, I had spent increasingly a lot of months becoming reclusive because, again, this is what happens. If you are finding that it's difficult to survive, um, you've lost your job, So then you tend not to interact with your friends or the people that you know so much because it's financially embarrassing. You can't go out, keep up. Um, You don't want to invite them to your house because your house is not in the state that you'd like it to be in because you're depressed. And so there's just piles of letters and bills everywhere and you can't bring yourself to tidy up. So then you become more and more reclusive. It's like a vicious cycle and you go down and down and down. And again, this goes back to what you were talking about, you know, where you think, well, this is the point, surely, at which something would kick in and you say, OK, pull yourself together, get off your butts, sort yourself out and get back on the horse. But I'd gone, I think, so far down. And then it must have been about the third time in my life this had happened. And thought, here we go again, homeless, jobless, broke skin on the street. Don't want to go back there again. Can't face it. checking
0: out yeah yeah and that's why it's so important that you know and and that we we all keep an eye out for people that we know uh and and even if it's not necessarily friends you know if 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 we see situations where you know people's routines are breaking or changing or you don't see somebody for a while or don't hear from them for a while whether it be a friend or a neighbor or a relative or whatever just having that awareness that, that 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 there might be something there and just just taking that moment to pick up the phone or to knock on the door or, or 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 send a text or whatever it is just just so that they know that that you're thinking about them and again i i had a situation quite recently actually where i uh, i kept forgetting to text somebody and i meant i meant i meant to text them uh, and um well, actually, it wasn't that I forgot. It's just that I decided not to. And then, and then I decided to do it. Um, and then, uh, and then, then something distracted me from it. So, uh, so yeah, and, and, and it was okay. It was, it was fine and, and everything else. But, um, but you might not have been. And I suppose that's the point. And when you have that thought, that's your intuition telling you, isn't it, that, that you've got to do something. So you've got to listen to your, to your gut and, and keep an eye out for the people around you.
1: I think that's spot on. It's, it's really important. Um, I think that's the other thing is that as we grow older, we become disconnected from following our intuition. Um, you have it knocked out of you, you know, as you're growing. Oh, you know, to grow up. Um, where's the evidence for that? You know, don't be silly. Children don't have that; these constraints in their head. You know, they have imaginary friends and all kinds of things, and. It's funny. It made me think of the Napoleon Hill book, Think and Grow Rich. He had imaginary friends. He had his council of wise people in his head who advised him. You know, what would Henry Ford do? You know, what would uh, Rockefeller? What would somebody else do? And he was being childlike. Look what look where that got him. You know. And the thing is that because we have it knocked out of us, we lose that playful element. I think that we lose our intuitive feeling to follow our heart a lot of the time
0: yeah
1: and we just "Oh no you know, do the sensible thing and follow the science that's not a sensible thing to do and we talk ourselves out of doing that so that's why i was really interested in what you're saying then about you know you were going to text them you weren't and you had this sort of push me pull you thing and and uh and then you did it in the end because yeah. inside you know but a lot of the time it just gets knocked out of us yeah yeah
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And following, following your guts, is important. I mean, your intuition is kind of, it is a muscle, isn't it? And you need to exercise it. So, uh, so yeah, if you, if you, if you don't listen to it and, and, and then at least test out what it's telling you at times, then, then that, that voice gets quieter and quieter. So, uh, so yeah, definitely that's a muscle to exercise. So look, so, so let's, let's get back to, um, to where you were then so 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 was this the turning point then
1: um it was in a way mm. it didn't happen for a while after right because once you're in those places if you haven't got family or someone to come and look after you or take you out you stay there there is no way out um because i could say look you know I didn't have any clothes. I didn't have my phone. I didn't have my wallet, I didn't have my keys, nothing. I was in one of these hospital gowns that covered up your front and left you rather immodest at the back. Yes. <laughs> hmm. That was all I had to live in for however many weeks I was there. I kept saying, look, you know, I need to go. I've got to get out. But all they kept doing was giving me more antidepressants and more electroconvulsive therapy. You know, I said, why are you doing this? Well, you have to have more of this because you've got to shift the depression and so on. Well, it it didn't help. Luckily, in the corner of the ward, I saw a computer. And I started going through it. And I saw Facebook. And I just started scrolling down, completely off my head. And I saw a name I recognized. It was a guy I was at school with 20 years previous. And I just messaged him and said, hello, mate. I know you haven't seen me for 20 odd years, but could you do me a big favor? I'm in a mental hospital. Can you come and spring me? And bless him, he drove all the way from Warwickshire down to Harrow with his wife, presented himself at the facility and said, we are his responsible adults we will take him away with us and look after him. Why? Right. If they didn't do that, and believe me, most people. What would you do if you got a message like that? You think block, delete.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd, cer- you'd certainly think two or three times, wouldn't you? But if so, if, if I'd not, if, I, if I'd not seen, I mean, you know, you'd, I, I would like to think that I would, I would do something. Um, but um, but yeah, that what a uh, it just came straight away. Yeah. Wow. That is amazing, isn't it?
1: And the other thing is, it's that intuition thing. And also, I'm pretty woo-woo, right? Because a lot of what I've experienced, I can't put any rhyme or reason to, apart from maybe that was meant to happen. And when I look back on so many instances in my life and join the dots, and I think, looking back, that was meant to happen. Because if that didn't happen, these other things wouldn't have fallen into place. Mm, mm. And I think that the more that I've started to trust my intuition, going back to that, is the more things have fallen into place. Yeah. What is woo-woo then?
0: Thanks for listening to People With Purpose. I hope you've enjoyed the show and are enjoying going on this journey. Please remember to like and subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell all your friends. And if you're interested in finding out more about any of the things we've covered in this episode of People With Purpose, just get in touch. All the details are in the show notes. Thanks. Bye.